Hello everyone, welcome back to Feminist Philosophy Phil 2500. We have had a long break, a nice reading week, hope everyone enjoyed the week off, and now we're jumping back into um, Nancy Tuana's article, Coming to Understand, Orgasm and the Epistemologies of Ignorance. So get right, I'll get just get right to it, get started because um, it was a long article and there are such interesting things in this article to talk about. So I'll just briefly begin with um, two biographies because I realized I forgot to give Alice Walker's biography before. So I'll start with that. Alice Walker, named Alice Malsenior Walker, was born February 9th in 1944 in Eatonton, Georgia, U.S. She's an American writer whose novels, short stories, and poems are noted for their insightful treatment of African-American culture. Her most famous novel was uh, called The Color Purple, which focused on um, women. She was the eighth child of African-American sharecroppers. While growing up, she was accidentally blinded in one eye, and her mother gave her a typewriter, which allowed her to write instead of doing chores. She received a scholarship to attend Spelman College, where she studied for two years before transferring to Sarah Lawrence College. After graduating, she moved to Mississippi and became involved in the civil rights movement. She began teaching, publishing, and publishing short, short stories and essays. She wrote The Color Purple in 1982, and the book won a Pulitzer Prize and was adapted into a film by Steven Spielberg in 1985, and a musical version was produced by Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey, which I actually saw in New York. It was awesome. And Quincy Jones, and it premiered in 2004. So that's just a very brief biography of Alice Walker, which is the, she's the author of the short story um, that we read for Monday. So I'll move on. I'm moving a little quickly because we do, because the Tuana article is, is, uh, is a longer one. So Nancy Tuwana was the founding director of Penn State's Rock Ethics Institute. She's a philosopher of science and feminist science studies, theorist who specializes in issues of ethics and science. She's part of an interdisciplinary research team at Penn State that has developed a more robust model of research ethics to more adequately reflect the impacts of ethical issues in scientific practice. So let's dive in. So as usual, we'll do um, about twenty minutes, a twenty-minute lecture, and then we'll, um, and then we'll do, take a break and do our second one. So just to before we begin, I know this is uh, an article about orgasm, and this may be uncomfortable. So I just wanted to say a little bit about why I think this is important. We've talked a lot in this class about. Um, about myths, about the social construction of gender, the social construction of sex. And um, this is a good, I think this is a good paper that points out the way that our social beings are also constructed by the myths of our culture that we're steeped in. And, and our sexual beings are very important. And I think it's I think it's important to talk about and why it's important. More specific, kind of concrete reasons will come up. Um, you know, so 
as a little um, teaser, if you think about what Tuana is saying in this article about the way that women's pleasure, female pleasure, has been devalued and male pleasure has been, um, I mean, it's just given so much attention, right? There's so much attention given to male pleasure and so little attention given to female pleasure. And here we have Tuana explaining that history with with reference to the clitoris and kind of the science and th- of and um, anatomy of the 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 study the anatomical study of the clitoris and how that's like kind of been ignored but if you think about this emphasis on male pleasure this attention on male pleasure and the lack of attention on um, on female pleasure you start to see it so many places so um you know for example i was i was listening to a ted talk by a um, sex researcher who said that when she was interviewing college-aged women and asked and she asked them how do you know if you've had a um a successful sexual encounter and the vast majority of college the college women the heterosexual college women said that a a successful sexual encounter is when a man the man has an orgasm and um when she asks college-aged men how they rank um how they know that a sexual encounter has been successful they also say because they've had an orgasm in a recent study by elizabeth armstrong another sex researcher she said that this sentiment was common in men this is from a male um, college student that she interviewed who said in a hookup i don't give a shit about whether the woman orgasms if we think about um, pornography pornography is the vast majority of pornography is about is about male orgasm this there's not a lot of i mean women's orgasm is not really important in porn and you know these are just a few examples of this difference this difference in attention of attending um and then i also thought that this article gave us some more concrete kind of explanation about the way sex is socially constructed so in this article we see that and there's a time where there's one sex and the female body is seen as a version of the male body a like a lesser version the male the male body is the body and then the female body is like a cheap knockoff the male body and then later we get a two sex model also to honest discussion of internal versus external genitalia and how that's just an arbitrary um, distinction that we've drawn since genitalia is both inside and internal and external so it's a just kind of a only it's just one way that you could carve up the world which is something we'll talk about in this article it's something Tuana talks about but I think this is this is about this idea that sex is socially constructed so the idea that sex is socially constructed is not about is not suggesting that our actual like the meat of us is socially constructed but the way that we organize that meat is socially constructed 
it's that's an arbitrary system we could we could organize the our meat bodies differently we could have different groupings we could say different things are the same as one another and different things are unlike one another right we could organize the meat bodies differently and this is this is uh, what it means to say that sex is socially constructed. I also thought this was this article was um, really good to point out the way that oppress, oppression structures science. Because here we have something that seems like it shouldn't involve that much. Uh, it shouldn't involve systems of oppression. It shouldn't matter who is the scientist. Because what we're talking about is anatomy. Is just like the anatomy of something. That seems like a straightforward question. What is the anatomy of the clitoris? But Tuana's point here is just how much the answer to that question or whether that question is even asked is about who is the scientist. And uh, so I think that that's an important feminist point is about the way oppression structures science as well. Throughout this lecture, I'd love if you could keep an ear out for the myths that are underlying the science. So, for example, that sex is between a man and a woman. So this is, well, the one term for this is heteronormativity. That sex is about reproduction. This is a big part, um, a big point that t- that Tawana makes throughout, which is, homo- which is homophobic, I want to point out. And then I want to think, I want you to keep in mind also how these myths infuse maybe your own sexuality, maybe then um, our, our sexual relationships more generally. And then lastly, I just want to say that throughout this lecture, I will be using woman to refer to someone who has a clitoris or a vulva. And this is not meant to be an exclusive, this is not an exclusive use of that term. So when, when I do that, I don't mean to say that you have to have those things to be a woman. I just want to be explicit about that. Okay, so let's get started. So Tuana begins by saying that it's important for epistemologies not to limit their attention only to what is known or believed to be known, but that we must develop epistemologies or ignorance. So what is ignorance? Well, it's not just a lack of knowledge that, say, good science aims to banish. It's better understood as a practice with social causes that's as complex as the social causes that are involved in knowledge practices. Ignorance should not be theorized as a simple omission or gap, but is in many cases an active production. So Robert Proctor says controversy can be engineered ignorance and uncertainty can be manufactured maintained and disseminated one example of this might be ignorance around climate change so according to nasa there is agreement among scientists working on climate change that climate change is happening and that it's caused by human activity so the numbers nasa gives is that not over 97% of scientists working on climate change agreed to this. And the extremely likely factor that, that he, climate change is caused by human activity is given as greater than 95% probability. 
An intergovernmental panel on climate change stated that scientific evidence for warming of the system is unequivocal. But it still seems really common to hear people say, climate change deniers say, well, scientists don't know or scientists disagree. And so we might think about why there's this ignorance around climate change and as Tawana says, who benefits from this ignorance. It's also important to be aware of how oppression works through and is shadowed by ignorance. So Charles Mills, quoted by Tawana, says, race involves a particular pattern of localized and global cognitive dysfunctions, which are psychologically and socially functional, producing the ironic outcome that whites will in general be unable to understand the world that they themselves have created. So a recent example of this that I just discovered in the last few days, I don't know if other people are following the bachelor, the racist bachelor controversy, but essentially one of the bachelor contestants, one of the women, there's the first um, black bachelor, and one of the contestants on The Bachelor, a white woman, just came, it came out that she had, there were photos of her at a Old South antebellum party, basically like a plantation owner themed party. And um, the host of The Bachelor was being interviewed by a black woman about it. And his response to, was to say, well, we know that, th that it's inappropriate now in 2021 to go to a plantation party. But in 2018, when she was at the plantation party, she didn't know, right? So this claim about ignorance. Oh, she should know in 2020 or 2021, but she didn't have to know about racism in 2018. Ignorance about racism in 2018 is like, you know, that's understandable. And that I just think is a great example of Charles Mills' point about ignorance as an active production, right? No, you should have known in 2018. There's no excuse for 2018. So Tuana writes, the question of how ignorance is sustained, cultivated, or allowed is one that must be asked explicitly and without assuming that the story will be the same for, ig for ignorance as for knowing. So how did this woman, how was this woman's lack or ignorance about racism sustained cultivated and allowed um, and that's and Tuana is going to explore that question not around the bachelor which was too bad but around female orgasms which is honestly way more interesting so in the next se section epistemologies of, or of uh, orgasm epistemologies of orgasm there's a few it's a little bit confusing this section so first, Tuana says, um, she writes, I adopt the habit of invoking a material semiotic presence. I write under the sign of Inanna, the Sumerian queen of heaven and earth. Let her be a reminder that sign and flesh are profoundly interconnected. And she cites Haraway. I won't get into it here because it's a little um, bit of a complicated tangent. So if you want to know any, if you want to know more about the Haraway material semiotic entities, you're welcome to send me an email or come see me in my office hours. But for now, I'll just say that the core idea I want you to take away from this section is Tuana's point about um, her not believing that there's a true female sexuality 
hidden deep beneath the layers of oppressive socialization. So sometimes when we think, when we learn that something is socialized, our reaction can be that, well, there's some true essence, there's some me that is underneath kind of the, these fake layers that uh, socialization and this these myths have put on top of my true self. And so here we have Tuana rejecting this and saying there's no true female sexuality that's hidden beneath the layers of oppressive socialization. There's no such thing as true female sexuality. Okay, so the next section is called Unveiling the Clitoris. So Tuana begins this story by talking about how she teaches a popular large lecture course on sexuality. And when she asks students about male genitals and female genitals, she finds that students in the class know far more about male genitals and male um, pleasure than they do about female genitals. So for example, both male and female students know way more about this average size and length of the penis, for example, than the, and they don't know anything about the average size of the clitoris. I don't know anything about that either. <laughs> what students know about female genitals is about reproduction, about the menstrual cycle and the reproduction organ, which is so interesting, I think. So we know nothing about our bodies, female bodies, as related to pleasure, but only to reproduction. And Tuana writes that this pattern of knowledge ignorance mirrors a similar pattern in scientific representations of male and female genitalia. The anatomy of the clitoris, particularly its beginnings and ends, are still contested terrain. And we'll see why throughout this article that it's still contested. So until the 19th century, men's bodies were believed to be the true form of human biology. So this is the single sex. So this is a great example of the social construction of sex. Only one sex here. And so the males were the true form of human biology and standard against which female structures were compared. Male genitals were the true form and women's were a colder interior virgin, version. Virgin, that's a bit of a Freudian slip. So the clitoris was depicted as, at best, uh, a worse version of the, pena, the penis, a knockoff a knockoff version, like you get in the trunk of a car somewhere in a, in a... So Ambroise Paré, a 16th century biologist who chronicled and described the various parts and functions of women's reproductive organs, refused to even discuss the clitoris, calling it the obscene part, and admonished and scolded those whose desire to know, who wanted to know more about it. Then along comes Rinaldus Columbus, who declares that he has discovered the clitoris and refers to it as a protuberance emerging from the uterus near the opening, which is called the mouth of the womb. And, and I just want to pause here and enjoy the hilarity of this science moment with a man claiming that he discovered the clitoris. And imagine the opposite, a female scientist claiming that she has discovered the penis. How ridiculous. What a goofball Rinaldus was. 
So we fast forward to the 19th century where the two-sex model has become dominant. So now we have the male and female model. So we have a new way of, of categorizing sex. We have a new way of clumping same and not same social construction of sex. And here the clitoris is just rendered as a simple nub, which though carefully labeled was seldom flushed out or made a focus of attention. Indeed, emerging in the 1940s and 1970s, the practice was to simply omit the clitoris altogether when offering a cross-sectional image of female genitalia. And, and Tuana points out that it's important to remember that this was happening, this omitting of the clitoris altogether, was happening while displays of penises were becoming even more complex. So then enter the health movement. The nub that tended to disappear in standard anatomical texts, the clitoris, took on complexity and structure in the hands of feminists during this women's health movement. The new view presented to us provides not only far more detail about clitoral structures, but also depicts the clitoris as large and largely internal, very complicated structure. So suddenly feminist texts were including illustrations of female erections, female arousal, which was, I mean, the textbooks had been putting in illustrations of male erections forever. So we have a classic case here of separate but unequal when it comes to contemporary non-feminist depictions of female and male genitalia. So all the above-mentioned contemporary ana um, anatomical textbooks or anatomy textbooks included detailed renditions of the structures of the penis, including multiple important sites or all the important sites for male engorgement and arousal. They're carefully drawn and labeled. And the clitoris is just represented as a mere nub. So I'll stop there and we'll pick up um, at fingering the truth. A lot, Tuana has a lot of good um, plays on words in this article too, which I, I always appreciate a good pun. So we'll pick up um, we'll pick up at fingering the truth in the next lecture. Okay, see you then. Bye. Hello and welcome to part two of our lecture on Nancy Tuana's article, Coming to Understand. So we're at the section now titled Fingering the Truth. So Tuana writes, despite 15 years of clear illustrations of the new feminist view of clitoral structures, our impact has been surprisingly minimal. A review of anatomical illustrations in standard college human sexuality textbooks reveals a surprising lack of attention to the functions and structures of the clitoris. Politics of ignorance, Tuana writes, is at work here. One link to the politics of sex, one linked to the politics of sex and reproduction. Whether female and male genitalia are seen as homologs, analogs, or somewhere in between, what has been treated very differently, Tuana writes, which we can see in centuries of scientific theories, is the way, tr the way pleasure has been treated. So this is something that, we, that I mentioned at the beginning of class, right? This, these, the sex researcher, for example, 
who found that women rate a heterosexual sexual encounter as successful if the male orgasms and men rate a heterosexual sexual encounter successful if they have an orgasm, which seems like a really stark example of men's pleasure being more important. And one thing Tawanda points out is the, the connection between uh, male pleasure ejaculation and uh, conception or reproduction. So in contrast, the question of female seed and the link between it and female pre- pleasure has always been a point of controversy, whereas the link between male pleasure ejaculation and conception has been little disputed from the Greeks to present. So Tuana writes, from the 13th century and onward, the link between conception and female pleasure in sex was typically denied. And women's sexual pleasure came to be seen as inessential to reproduction, although many scholars admitted that it might be useful in promoting desire for intercourse. Now, to this view of function, or lack thereof, of female erotic pleasure, add the politics of sex. Sex is about reproduction, and this is the myth. This is uh, the an underlying myth, Tawana is saying. Then, on top of that, add the politics, politics of female sexuality, which in days of yore was that women were more lustful than men and their sexuality was seen as a danger to men. And I just want to note this, this myth of women being more, this cultural narrative of women being more lustful than men, and to point out that we are live in a time now in north american culture where that myth has completely flipped so now we have the myth of women not not having high libidos and men having extremely high libidos men being more lustful than men all these kind of tropes think of like like stereotypes around um gay men as being like, oh, they must be having so much sex because it's two men. Men always want to have sex. So just a few hundred years ago, that cultural view was completely switched. So Tawana says, okay, from these things, we can clearly see why clitoral structures might have gotten lost. First, there's no quote-unquote good reason to pay attention to the clitoris, given that it plays no role in reproduction. And sex is only studied in order to understand reproduction. And second, there's good reason not to pay attention to the clitoris lest we, quote, stir up a hornet's nest of stinging desires. So what better reason to construct and maintain an epistemology of ignorance? What better way to disqualify and perhaps even control women's sexual satisfaction by not learning about women's women's sexual pleasure structures, anatomy. But Tawana says this is an oversimplification and science has turned its gaze on the structures of the, of the clitoris, but primarily to seek out and control deviants. So for example, the sex variant study interrogated marks of uh, homosexual deviants, which was believed to be imprinted on the structures of the body. To be very clear, homosexuality is not deviant. And I also just want to pause with this idea. I think this is a really interesting point, this idea that we we think that deviance 
marks of whatever we think is deviant are going to be imprinted on the structures of the body. I think right now in our culture right now, um, fat our, our fat phobic culture or our fat shaming culture is an example of this, that it's about this view that some kind of deviance is being um, imprinted on the body, which is to be very cl- clear, false. Tuana goes on to say, the point here is that epistemol- this epistemology is not about truth. She's not arguing that the feminist model of the threefold structures of the clitoris finally uncovered the long submerged truth of the clitoris. Neither is she arguing that feminists were finally practicing good science and being objective, since the feminist diagrams were also motivated, motivated by looking into female pleasure. What is missing, Tuana argues, or, or only sort of attended to in non-feminist anatomies, at least when the focus is on norm, quote-unquote normal rather than deviant, is the desire to map the geographies and functions of the clitoris and other pleasurable bits. So Tuana is saying, look, what's interesting about the history of the mapping of the anatomy of the clitoris is not so much who's right and wrong, but why people weren't interested in it. Why weren't people interested in figuring it out? So we're on to the next um, section called the issue of pleasure. So until the 19th century, the view was that women's desire for sex and also the pleasure they got from sex was seen as far greater than men's. So she gives that little quote that says basically, if pleasure is 10, 10 is out of a scale of 10 women got nine parts and men got one but if you fast forward to a 1994 survey of heterosexual women and men in the u.s this has completely flipped so about a third of women reported being uninterested in sex compared to about 15 percent of men 20 percent of women reported that sex provided little pleasure compared to only 10 percent of men 25% of women reported being unable to reach orgasm compared to only 8% of men. And 79% of men reported that they had an orgasm during their first sexual encounter, while only 7% of women reported the same. 7% to almost 80%. What is that about? That's weird, right? That's weird. These figures are astonishing in themselves, Tuana says, but they become even more startling when you learn that women have multi-orgasmic capacities, that women are actually biologically, well, you know, I mean, not all women, but a lot of women are, are capable of having multiple orgasms. So here we have an example of what Tuana talked about earlier, where ignorance, where knowledge can be had and then lost, that this is also a production of ignorance. So we have what was taken to be ordinary knowledge of women's more robust sexuality and greater orgasmic capacity and it's just been lost to the mire of ignorance sometime during the last century and Tuana concludes this by saying at a time when this section by saying at a time when pop culture and science alike are convinced of men's greater sexual drives 
when a long entrenched fear of the power of women's sexuality is still in the background, when a clear double standard of sexuality disciplines women and men alike, when heterosexuality remains the normalized sexuality, it is perhaps no surprise that far more women than men are dissatisfied when it comes to the issue of pleasure. And in terms of this idea of double standard of sexuality disciplines, we can think about these kind of tropes for women. I mean, all the, all the policing that cultures do around women's sexuality, right? So um, I think of Amy Schumer has a skit about being the Madonna and the whore, about this, tra- this trap for women of being, of walking this super fine line between being a slut, a whore, and um, and then being a virgin, right? There are these two women are supposed to be these two things, and then also shamed for being either one of those things. So you're supposed to be women are supposed to be virginal, but then being a virgin is being frigid. And that's bad. Women are supposed to be promiscuous. You know, you want a lady in the on the street, but a freak in the bed. But then there, you know, there's but women are shamed for having too much sex or too many sexual partners. So there are these different um, ways that women and men, the, the ways that their sexuality are con- controlled by, so, by our social kind of standards. So now we're on to the section called the either or of women's orgasms. So this section is looking at the role of the clitoris in female orgasms. So there's a long debate about orgasms that Tawana says began with Freud's declaration that there are two types of orgasm, vaginal and clitoral. And Freud saw, Freud argued that vaginal was the adult female orgasm and clitoral was the not, um, the the prepubescent female orgasm. It was like the you're supposed to women are supposed to graduate for some reason to a vaginal orgasm after puberty, which why the heck would Freud know Freud know anything about women? Good 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 goodness. Okay, so Tuana returns to Columbus, and um, she talks about how Columbus saw in his time. Uh, pleasure was still important for seen as important for conception even in women and for this reason Tuana says his description dissolves the boundary between inside and out the so-called external and internal because he's looking now at the whole the whole thing because pleasure is still part of reproduction so there's not this this um, division being made between external not related to reproduction parts and internal related to reproduction parts. He also, Tuana notes, doesn't limit female pleasure to the clitoris. He describes various linked structures, but he has no desire to determine where one part of the genitals begins or where orgasm stops or starts or he doesn't try to locate pleasure in a clearly defined site. And then Freud comes along and says, okay, look, 
for whatever reason, boys have this relatively unproblematic accession of libido during puberty. Surprise, surprise, Freud thinks boys are, everything's great. Um, And girls, on the other hand, he says, need to abandon the pleasure of the clitoris and discover the pleasure of the vagina in order to become a woman. And one way to explain this is about tying female pleasure to heterosexual reproduction. That female pleasure has to be connected to reproduction. Then in um, The Politics of Feminism comes around the 1960s in Masters and Johnson, and they reject this Freud notion. They say, no, it's just all clitoral. And we have um, feminist thinkers pick up this Masters and Johnson, and we have this um, think clitoris reject the myth of vaginal orgasm is the feminist slogan. But Tuana says, look, that went too far. That went too far. Look, we don't, suddenly we're back to saying that only the clitoris is the source of sen- of sensation. But why, why did we have to swing so far in the other way? And, and Tuana asks, why do we need to do all this differentiating between different female orgasms if we're reassured repeatedly that they're equally good? And Tuana gives us two answers. One is the geography of the genitals, and two is the persistence of the belief that the function of sex is reproduction. Why not think instead that one function of sex is reproduction, but there that there are many other very valuable functions of sex. Say, for example, connection, human connection, or pleasure and joy, or even just as something to do to pass the time. So Tuana says those who sketch anatomical renditions of male and genitals, now we're in this place where we, ins- where we have this distinction, we've made this distinction between internal and external genitals. And Tuana points out, look, this is clearly arbitrary. We don't need to divide it this way. We could divide it in other ways. And how do we know this is arbitrary? Well, because all these things have both internal and external parts. So say, take, for example, the male penis, which is seen as an external genital, but has tons of internal bits. And Tuana says that this division reinforces these orgasm debates because it's a way to make sense of these claims for different orgasms because we have an outside now and an inside so we can say oh well that orgasm is an outside orgasm the clitoris say a clitoral orgasm and another orgasm is an inside orgasm say a vaginal orgasm but as the um, the feminists pointed out in their anatomical sketch of the clitoris, the clitoris also has extensive internal uh, structures. So this is the first reason, the geography of the genitals that we've um, made up and then it has like allowed it to, allowed this to make more sense, these different orgasms. Then the second one is this persistent belief that that the only function of sex is reproduction, reproduction, which is also just profoundly homophobic. So once the clitoris and orgasmic pleasures were seen as inessential to reproduction, 
then few anatomists cared about about learning about it and it was relegated to the little undifferentiated nub that could easily be deemed external and non-reproductive. And here Tuana points out the workings of the politics of knowledge ignorance. So she says there's been a persistent refusal to admit that the new feminist-inspired view of the female genitals dissolves the basis for the internal-external divide, for the clitoris is always already both. But as Tuana says, it's very hard to get uptake of information if it runs against the active ignorance that's being produced. And here Tuana makes a really important point. So she she says the desire to cut nature at its joints, to carve things up into things that are like some things and not like other things, to group things, to categorize things, um, is value laden. It's not, we're not just describing the world as it is. We're describing the world as we see it through value laden eyes, through glasses that are thick with how we want the world to be. So Tuana says, perhaps the body speaks, but understanding what it says requires interpretation. And that's also a great tagline for the social construction of sex, right? Yes, there is a body. Yes. And there are things that the bodies have in common and things they have different, but how we group those is super value laden comes with a lot of our own baggage already it's not pure description it's it has it has all of our values and baggage in it so tuana wraps up this section by saying what we learn from feminist explorations of genital geography is two things if you're interested in the clitoris as a as a object for knowledge because you think there's it's involved in pleasure and you think pleasure is important or because you think it's part of um, orgasm is part of reproduction and you think reproduction is important then you're much more likely to focus on the structure of the clitoris and think and want to understand the the structure of the clitoris if you think it's an uninteresting nub that does nothing then you are unlikely to be interested in it. So Tawana points out what we attend to, what we think is worth studying and learning about, what we ask questions about, the how we, how we ask questions, what we ignore, what we think is not worth knowing or there's nothing to know about, is interwoven in a very complex and interesting way with our values and our politics. That's the first point. Second point is if you discover new knowledge about something that others, that that isn't important because of these values, these cultural values and politics, then it's very hard to get people to take you seriously and to uptake your knowledge, which brings us back to these, um, the willful hermeneutical ignorance, right? You have marginalized groups who are doing all this work to come up with conceptual resources to explain exper their experiences say and then dominant groups who don't uptake this knowledge because 
it's not important to them and maybe it even runs counter to their um, their values or their politics so now we're in the section called sisterhood is powerful and this section explores sexuality in primates and how the sexuality of primates has been used by evolutionary theorists to say something about female sexuality i won't say much about this because we're um, just running short on time and so Tuana points out that uh, chimp sexual behavior, which is sexual behavior that happens primar- primarily in female chimps' fertile period, is when they have sex, um, has been taken as the blueprint for human sexuality by evolutionary theorists, even though bonobos, who we also share a common ancestor with, just like chimps, have very different sexual behavior sexual behavior that is much closer to our sexual behavior where females have sex um not just on their fertile period and and bonobos tuana points out seem to have sex for all kinds of reasons not just for reproduction but also for relationship building for um making up after a fight for to calm the group down before they do some kind of activity like all eat a new food supply together. So why choose chimp sexual behavior as the blueprint for human sexuality and not bonobo um, sexual behavior? Well, because the chimp behavior is better for all these agendas. And I mean, I just want to be clear that the, you know, these things can be really, these values and the politics can be like pretty deep in our beliefs. It's not you know, it's not like someone has a, goes in, a scientist goes in with a clipboard that says like, find the answer that matches this value, you know, women, repress women's sexuality, but you know, they're just, they're deep in our, in our um, being and we are the ones interpreting, interpreting data that, ha- you know, has many interpretations. Also, Tuana points out in this um, evolutionary theorist literature that uh, many think that female orgasms are unique to humans, despite lots of evidence to the contrary. Why would they do that? Well, because female orgasm has been used as a reason for female bonding and long-term relationships. So the argument is, female orga human female orgasm serve, serves as a female's reward and motivation to engage in frequent in- intercourse with only one partner which helps cement the pair bond ensures reproduction and so on so this is like monogamous heteronormative um, family values and i mean you just if you think about this for one second it, it makes no sense this idea there's no connection between these bits orgasm and intercourse well you know masturbation is much quicker and more reliable one partner why would orgasm connect you to one partner why why would it why wouldn't you want orgasms with multiple partners there's no automatic connection i i don't see between orgasm and then the desire for a single partner if if it does connect why a long-term partner why monogamy? Why not multiple the serial monogamy? Or why why not multiple long-term partners at the same time? 
So there's just a lot that's suspect in that claim. Um, then Tuana also brings up the claim of the, the myth of male virility, which is really interesting. And this, I mean, this is a myth in our culture for sure that men can sire many children. Um, and so this, and this connected, this led to the myth that men don't want emotional attachment. Women, women get attached. That's like, you see that in, in movies and TVs all the time. It's like, oh, well, if you, if you have sex with her, then she's like, she's going to want to marry you. But, oh, men just want sex without any kind of emotional attachment. And, and you know, maybe this is also connected to, tied to myths about men not being emotional at all, right? Men are just these emotionless um, philanderers. But, I mean, that is not my experience with men. Of course men have emotions, but I digress. So Tuana wraps up this section by saying, my point is to point out the dramatic suppression of female orgasm capacity in current evolutionary accounts. Human women's orgasms are not denied, but they are carefully cultivated to fit social scripts and values. So now we're into the last section, um, bodies and pleasure. And in this section, she talks about um, normalization and disciplinary practices. So we can think about the way that normal involves um, a, saying something is good and something is bad, which is going to involve um, disciplinary practices or controlling behavior practices, power practices. Because, you, because what happens with normal is it's don't do that that's bad that's not normal do that that's good that's normal and i would say the central claim of this section is that we can't escape this we can't escape normalization we can't escape disciplinary practices but what is suggested here is to make pleasure the primary disciplinary tool so pleasure is the thing that says distinguishes good from bad and what if we used pleasure and not pain as our primary disciplinary tool? And she quotes um, Sprinkles as saying, um, living, what if we lived our bodies as who we are, we intensified our experiences of bodiliness and tried to think from our bodies? If we are going to push back against the narrow confines of the normalizing powers, that constrict our freedom, let's use pleasure. So I will stop there. And um, I just want to say there's no extra assignment this week. We'll start that next week. So keep an ear out for um, a question to answer at the end of next week's lectures. Okay, have a great weekend. Bye.